0: This is one of the greatest dangers in the church. That's allowing people to stand up and greet one another. Then you've completely lost them. No, it's really, really wonderful. Actually, to just stand up here and and hear and watch uh, all of that fellowship going on. It's really encouraging. A group of us... uh, yesterday spent the day out on the high seas, out on the USS Lane Victory, which was really quite an experience, and um, I'm still uh, feeling the effects of that experience. So, so if I hold on to the pulpit extra tight this morning, it's because the room is rocking. I'm not kidding you. It's, uh, today, there have been a couple of times when the floor has been moving a little bit on me. I don't know if they offered Dramamine for landlubbers or what? But anyway, it was a great time to be out there, and tremendous sacrifice. I didn't realize what a sacrifice the uh, Merchant Marine made during World War II. The uh, guide uh, was telling us that they suffered the highest casualties of any group in World War II, even more than the Marines with all of their beach landings in the Pacific. One out of every twenty-six Merchant Marine uh, men died. Gave their lives in the shipment of cargo back and forth across the Atlantic and Pacific. I'm assuming it's both. So it was really quite an amazing thing. They built 4,000 of those ships. And uh, at, at the peak of the war, they told us that their 33 a week were being sunk and completely lost. So uh, really an amazing sacrifice that uh, people were willing to make. It was indeed the greatest generation, huh? So open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter six this morning. Matthew six, and we're going to attempt to work our way through verses twenty-five to thirty-four this morning. Got a long message for you this morning, but um, you're not going anywhere, I don't think. And uh, I mean, if towards the end you feel like you have to get up and leave, then go for it. Uh, it'll be your loss. So, you know, when I was reading this passage this week and, and thinking about it and so forth, it it came to my remembrance that I had actually preached from this passage in this pulpit about 14 years ago. December 27, 1998, to be precise, I preached a sermon from this passage. And that sermon was preached at the request of the elders because uh, those of you who can remember back that far, uh, yeah we were uh, or not we, but the but the uh, the world was concerned, and the Christian world was very concerned that uh, y two k was going to bring an end to everything. you remember that yeah y two k all the computers were going to shut down, airplanes were going to fall out of the sky. It was all kinds of crazy things that were talked about, and so Within the Christian community, there was a fair amount of worry and anxiety leading up to that. And so we addressed that topic from this passage. And that's what this morning's message is about. I've entitled it Freedom from Anxiety. This morning's message is Freedom from Anxiety. Worry, anxiety, I'm going to use them somewhat synonymously this morning, is a really interesting thing. According to the dictionary, one definition of the word worry is, quote, to grasp and tug repeatedly at something. To grasp and tug repeatedly at it, like the idea of a dog worrying a bone. It can be used that way. It actually comes from an old English word that originally meant to seize by the throat and to strangle. And that's a pretty good description, isn't it? Worry is a, is an, is a sort of a mental strangulation that competes against all other thoughts and eventually squeezes and chokes them out until the person who has been given over to worry or anxiety can't think of anything else. Even God gets pushed out of their thinking by this strangulating process of worry. It is a, a preoccupation of the human mind and spirit that can paralyze an individual. And my friends, we live in a nation of worriers. We live in a nation of worriers. There is not a person in this room who is not guilty to some degree and at some time of the sin of worry. It, indeed, is probably one of the sins of our generation. I went on a website and was was looking around a little bit, and I'll share some of these things with you, and it's a did-you-know kind of thing. Did you know that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness, according to this website, in the United States, affecting 40 million adults in the United States from ages 18 and up? That's about 18% of the U.S. population. Anxiety disorders cost the United States more than $42 billion a year, consume about a third of our health care dollars that are spent in the area of mental health. According to their website, people with anxiety disorders are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor and six times more likely to be hospitalized than those who do not suffer. The doctors, according to this website, the doctors say that anxiety disorders develop from a complex set of, quote, risk factors that include genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and life events. They all, according to the doctors, they all contribute. Now, I'm not going to try to delve into the physiological issues of brain chemistry and genetics and all of that sort of thing. They undoubtedly have some role to play with regard to anxiety and worry, and particularly advanced forms of anxiety and worry. But I do want to say this to you, that biblically speaking, worry is a sin. Worry is a sin. It is the sin of distrusting the promises and providences of God. And it may well be one of the most frequently committed sins of which you and I are guilty. Worry is a sin. Now, whether a person is physiologically predisposed towards the sin of worry, it would be an interesting discussion to have at another time. But even if that's true... It doesn't really alleviate the issue. Someone may be physiologically predisposed toward the sin of anger, but that does not get them off the hook. When provoked, they must walk in the Spirit and not uh, respond in anger to the provocation. That's what God would have for us. And so with the issue of worry and anxiety, as I say, there may be some physiological things in there. I have no idea. But in a sense, at the, at the base of it all, it doesn't really matter. You have to walk in the Spirit against it. Now Jesus says here at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, and that's what we're still discussing, that in order for his disciples to enter into the kingdom, they have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Chapter 5 and verse 20. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious and outwardly righteous men of their day. And Jesus says that that's not enough. You have to have something that exceeds that. So let me ask you just, uh, you know, as we're getting started here this morning, in kind of practical behavioral terms, so let's make it really practical here. What does a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees look like? The answer, at least for this morning, is a life free from anxiety. A life free from anxiety, free from worry. That would, in very practical, very behavioral terms, express what Jesus means. When he says we have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now this morning, in the passage before us, beginning in verse 25 and running all the way to the end of the chapter, in verse 34... Jesus speaks to us through a repeated use of prohibition and illustration. Actually, three times he gives us a prohibition and he illustrates each one. And and he does it, he teaches us this morning through these prohibitions and illustrations how to be free from anxiety. So it's not just a a message of condemnation that says, don't do this, it's sin, but there's actually a, a message of deliverance to be found in this. So that we might live like children of the king. Freedom from anxiety. That's what we're promising this morning for those who will walk in the Spirit. So let's take a look together at the first prohibition. It appears in verse 25. The first prohibition is stop worrying. And then you could probably add a hyphen here. Remember the sovereignty and love of God. Stop worrying Remember the sovereignty and love of God. Okay, stop your worrying. Remember the sovereignty and love of God. Verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For this reason, Jesus is tying this next section of the, of the message, of the sermon here, very closely to what has preceded. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one, love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You remember that last week. That God and wealth, uh, wealth becoming personified, is another God for which one could be enslaved and serve. And so Jesus is saying here that, listen, because you are a slave of God for this reason, and as your master, you can rest assured in the fact that he will take care of you. For this reason, don't worry. Don't worry about life. Don't worry about the basic elements of life, food, water, clothing. Your master will provide these things for you. Now, to those living in Palestine, this message would hit them a little, more, a little differently than it would hit you and I. The history of the land of Israel is a long history of famine and drought. It's a very difficult land, much like Southern California, very dependent upon rains. And so as you go through the history of the people there, they know what it is to starve literally to death at times under various uh, sieges where they actually resorted to cannibalism. It was so bad. They know what it's like to have these shallow wells dry up and to suffer drought. They know what it's like to be in danger of actually not having enough clothing to wear. Jesus spoke primarily here to people who were poor. People who lived on subsistence, living, hand to mouth. Even their clothing, they would commonly have one set of clothing, which would include an inner, an inner garment and a tunic and then some sort of an outer cloak. And the outer cloak was their blanket. It was sort of like their, their traveling tent. The Old Testament, actually, in Exodus 22 and verse 26, forbids a creditor from taking the outer cloak and holding it overnight because the person needs it to keep warm. So these folks, they didn't have much. And, and the loss of your clothing through, through either theft or it wearing out or, or being seized because of an unpaid debt or whatever would be a catastrophic occurrence for them. Catastrophic. So Jesus is talking here about survival. That's the issue in verse 25. It's about survival. It's not about the variety or the quality of the menu. And unfortunately for us, that's pretty much how we would approach it. But Jesus is talking to a people who it's whether I eat today or don't eat today is the issue at hand. And it's to these people, people living on the edge, that he gives them the command not to worry about their daily needs. Do not worry about your daily needs. And and he bases the command here in both the sovereignty and the love of God. The sovereignty and the love of God. Do not be worried, verse 25, he says. It's It's a present active indicative, which just simply means stop being worried. It's a better translation. They are already worried. And he's telling them to cease this activity of worry. And he's going to to do this. This is the basic message, and he's going to do this over and over again, and he's going to use various theological arguments and various illustrations to drive home this point about stopping worry. Now, he begins with what's known as an argument from the greater to the lesser. An argument from the greater to the lesser, and you can see it here, where he says uh, at the end of the verse 25, "...is not life more than food?" and the body more than clothing. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? In a nutshell, it's simply this. Because God has given you life and given you a physical body, therefore can He not and will He not provide for that life and that body? It's simply that. Your life, your body, are the most valuable things that God has given to you in that sense, and so God will provide for you. He will take care of you. It's an issue of his sovereignty. It's an issue of his sovereignty. And you might ask it this way, do he really believe that God has the power to provide our daily needs? Do you really think he has that kind of power? We talk about the sovereignty of God all the time, right? We love it. The sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in salvation. And we believe that. And God is sovereign in creation. And, you know, and he spoke the universe into existence. And we believe that. And, and it's all true. We just struggle over the basic stuff. Like he who spoke the universe in existence. Right? Can he provide something for me to eat? And it's really a silly question when you boil it down to that level. If God is truly sovereign then he is sovereign over the most minute things as well, including whether you can eat or drink or whether you have anything to wear. Trusting him in the big issues. We're supposed to trust him in the little. Greater to lesser. Now he goes on to illustrate this in verse 26 with his first illustration of food. And here he just flips the argument. It's a lesser to greater argument. The other was greater to lesser, sovereignty to provision. This is lesser to greater. It's going to be birds to men. Okay, verse 26, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Are you not worth much more than they? Now, the region of northern Galilee, where the Sermon on the Mount was most likely preached, has been called the uh, the crossroads of bird navigation. There are all kinds of flyover patterns through that area. Birds are constantly moving through that area. And so perhaps when Jesus is preaching this sermon, he's outside preaching it, of course. And perhaps he just sees some birds and he just seizes upon that as an illustration of the principle that he has been talking about here. And he, and he says, look at the birds. You know, here they are flying over, right? Look at those birds and, and learn something. Birds don't engage in agricultural endeavors. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store their food in barns, right? But just because they don't engage in these things, that doesn't mean they starve to death. God provides for them. Now, Jesus is not, you, not speaking here to, to condone laziness. Okay? It's not all about laziness. Anybody who's ever watched a bird knows that birds work hard, right? They're always splitting here, there, and everywhere and gathering their food and so forth uh, to eat. So they're active, but listen, they're active in work. They're not active in worry. They're active in work. They're not active in worry. And that's really the point of comparison that Jesus is making here. He's saying the birds don't worry about what they're going to eat tomorrow. Jesus doesn't say here, do not sow. He says, do not worry. Do not worry. Because God feeds them. And notice he says here, your heavenly Father feeds them. You see that in verse 26? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Not their heavenly Father, your heavenly Father. God is not the heavenly Father of the birds. He is the heavenly Father of his children. Of his children. And so it's an issue of love. He cares for the birds with whom he does not have a special relationship. Won't he care for me? Won't he care for you with whom he does have a special relationship? The answer, of course, we would have to come back with is yes. Of course, he would. Food. Let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever seen an earthly father feed the birds and abandon his children? I don't think we could even conceive of such a thing. Feeding the birds and abandoning his children. And so why would we believe our heavenly father would feed the birds and abandon us? Silly. Silly. So look to nature and see both the sovereignty and the love of God. Here's another illustration here, verse 27. The illustration of the future. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? This is what I would call an argument from folly. An argument from folly. Now, literally, what Jesus says here is, is that who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his life? Now, the cubit is the distance from the, little, the middle finger, tip of the finger, to the elbow of the king. Okay, That's a cubit. And that's the, that's the actual word here, but the New American Standard translates it as an hour, as hour, and I think that's the right way to get at this here. Because the Old Testament does speak of, of unit measures of, of distance and relates them to time. For example, Psalm 39, verse 5 Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, okay, the width across the hand. You've made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. So it's not uncommon to use a, a measurement of length and apply it to a measurement of time. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And the power of this illustration really lies in its absurdity. That's why I call it an argument from folly. This is really an absurd argument. By worrying, can you add an hour onto your next birthday? That's the question. Right? Now, that's a silly question to ask, really, when you boil it down that way, because of course you can't. Everybody knows you can't do that. You can't, you can't delay the birthday. You can't add on to your life by your worry. We are born and we die by the sovereign pleasure of God. That message is all through the Scriptures. God brings life into existence, and when God is done, He takes it back out again. The only thing that worry can do is to severely hamper the quality of the life that God has given to you. So it's a silly thing to worry, Jesus said. It's an absurd thing to worry because you cannot lengthen your life by doing it. That takes us to a third illustration. This is what I'm calling the illustration of fashion. So we've had food, we've had future, and now we have fashion. This is constructed, again, as a lesser to greater kind of argument. He'll he'll argue from the smaller thing to the greater principle. Verse 28, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed themselves like one of these. The lilies, probably some sort of scarlet, poppy growing wild here in the fields around them again. Jesus can just look and see an illustration and point it out to people. And it's these wildflowers that they display the care of God, don't they? They're absolutely beautiful. They don't work hard at being beautiful. They just are beautiful. They're clothed in a, in a beautiful way. They grow effortlessly, they grow gorgeously. And Jesus makes a comparison here. Yet, verse uh, 29, I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now Solomon had become by that time proverbial for his wealth. He was the most wealthy king the world knew on that day. In 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 9, verse 13, it says of Solomon's wealth that his annual intake of gold was approximately 25 tons. Approximately 25 tons of gold came in every year into his kingdom. I was going to do the math, but I thought, you know, I actually did it on my calculator, but it came out to that something to the somethingth power, and I don't know what that means. So, so I couldn't tell you, other than it broke my calculator and made it display funny scientific notation i believe is what it's called that's about all i remember from math class anyway that's a lot 25 tons of gold coming into the kingdom every year in fact it says there in that same chapter chapter 9 that silver had become so common in his kingdom that it was no more valuable than the rocks on the street that was the kind of wealth that had been accumulated by solomon and jesus says even in all his glory With all that power and wealth, he didn't clothe himself as spectacularly as the wildflowers of the field. The wildflowers of the field. They grew effortlessly because God took care of them. Verse 30, he'll drive it home here. He'll say, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You see how this is an argument from, from the lesser to the greater? If God will clothe the grass of the field, grass that is that, is, that quickly dries out and becomes nothing more than tinder to, to get a fire started, a little clay oven that, a, that a, a peasant woman would use to bake her daily bread on, that's all it's good for, just to preheat the oven. Yet if God will, will spectacularly clothe the field in these brilliant poppies... Won't he take care of you? Won't he clothe you? Won't he provide what you need? I mean, your destiny is eternal life by faith in Christ. Won't God take care of your needs? You notice the end of verse 29 this expression. You of little faith. Anybody who cannot answer in the affirmative to the question just above that, will he not much more clothe you? To whoever cannot answer yes to that affirmation, Jesus has some strong words. He says, oh, you of little faith. When you are are caught in in the paralyzing, stranglehold of worry and anxiety. You're of little faith. Your faith is small. Your faith is displeasing to God. There's an interesting little expression here, little faith, allegapistoi in the Greek, and I only say that because I like the way it sounds. Okay, allegapistoi. What it literally means is little-faithed men little faith men and it's used this expression actually 5 times in the new testament four of them by matthew and the context in which it repeatedly occurs is worth looking at so listen matthew 6 verse 30 luke 12:28 same context here right and it's the worry about clothing it appears in matthew 8:26 where the disciples are afraid of drowning during a storm. They're out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and the storm is so great the boat is going to sink, or at least they think it is, and they are afraid of losing their life by drowning. Matthew 14, 31. Peter is afraid of drowning while he's walking on the water. Matthew 16 and verse 8. The disciples are concerned over the fact that they have not brought any bread with them to eat. In all of these situations, it would seem like a somewhat natural concern and worry they would have, right? I'm drowning. I don't have anything to wear. And not like, you know, I'm going out tonight and I don't have anything to wear. But, you know, I'm in danger of dying of exposure here. I don't have anything to eat. I mean, these seem like sort of natural things. You you would almost expect Jesus to say, now, 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 now. It's okay. I've got it. Don't worry about it. Right? I understand why you're worried. I mean, after all, it's a scary thing to be afraid of drowning. It's a scary thing to think about going hungry. It's a scary thing to think about having no place to live. Nothing to wear. But he doesn't respond like that. He actually, he gives them one of the harshest rebukes that he gives to his disciples anywhere in the New Testament. It's, it's, it, it just really is shocking. You little faith men. Little faith men. You need to strengthen your faith, your, your commitment to the king and, and his kingdom. You need to remember the sovereignty and the love of God. One commentator writes, and I quote, Worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. Worry is practical atheism, and it's an affront to God. When we become choked with worry, when anxiety wells up in our heart and and begins to squeeze God out, We don't lose our orthodox expression of Christianity. What we lose is is the day-to-day practical living living it out. We become like a practical atheist. And God is not happy about that. It's an affront to him. And it draws a very sharp rebuke. A very sharp rebuke. So listen, we we become free from anxiety, and that's what we're talking about here this morning. How do we become free from anxiety? We become free from anxiety by stopping worrying and instead by remembering the sovereignty and the love of God, our Heavenly Father. Stopping your worry and instead remembering God's sovereignty and His love for you as His child. Second, second prohibition, and it, appears here in verse 31 and following. Here it's don't worry. It's not to stop worrying. It's just a plain old statement. Don't do it. Don't start. Don't begin. Don't go there. Okay? Don't go there. Don't worry. Change your focus. Don't worry. Change your focus. Change your focus. This is how to be free from anxiety. Don't worry. Change your focus. Verse 31. Do not worry, then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We had instructed earlier in chapter 6 and in verse 11 to pray daily for our food, right? Pray for our daily bread. We are instructed by the apostle Paul that we are to work hard. To earn a living to provide for our needs, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 to 13. But we are to pray and we are to work in complete trust of God. Complete trust in God, knowing that it is God who ultimately takes care of us. Now, let me apply this here a little bit. If it's prohibited to you and I to to worry about basic survival needs, right? Water, food, clothing... If it's prohibited to worry about those things, then it must be by extension prohibited to be worried about other lesser things. Wouldn't you agree with me? If you can't worry about the things that are necessary to sustain your very life, then obviously you're not supposed to be worried about all the other lesser things that occur in life. Like job loss. Like your children. Like your health. Like your marriage prospects. Like the politics. Or the economy. Or next week's school exam. Or anything else. If You can't be worried about the big things. You can't be worried about the little things either. So this is, a, this is an all-encompassing prohibition against worry. All-encompassing. Do not Worry, don't go there, don't start, don't move down that path, don't open that door. And then he illustrates it, verse 32, with an illustration of family identity. He has food, he has the future, he has fashion. Here he has family identity. Verse 32, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He's drawing a contrast here in verse 32 between two groups of people. Those who are outside of the covenant, called Gentiles, and those who are in the covenant, called children of God. Now, those outside the covenant, those Gentiles, remember how the Apostle Paul described them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He describes them there as separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now, for those kind of people, worry is a natural thing. It's a natural thing. The gods of the Greco-Roman world were no gods at all. But they were capricious, they were ill-tempered, they were uncaring, they were unfeeling, they were cold, they were distant. People would make tremendous offering to them, but they never were really sure that the God received them with any kind of favorable view at all. They lived in constant fear that they had not done enough. People who do not know Jesus today, they live in the same kind of insecurity. It's the same situation. Tell me, you who believe that God will welcome you into his presence because of, because of your good works. Answer this question for me. Are you sure? Are you sure? How many good works does it take? How good do they have to be to offset your evil? What a tragedy it would be that if the last day of your life and you pass from this world and pass into the judgment of God and you're one short. Just one short. It's no answer at all. You're just as bad off as the, as the Gentiles that Jesus is talking about here. No. Listen, if you, by faith, have committed yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe that Christ died in your place, that He rose again on the third day so that by faith in Him, you too can have everlasting life, the life of God, then there's no care. There's no concern. There's no trouble in this life that hasn't come through the sovereign plan of God and from which He will not see you through. He's committed to you. He knows you. He cares about you. You can entrust yourself into into His loving hands. Look at that, verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. When it speaks of Him knowing it, the idea is He knows it and He will do something about it. It's not just that He's aware, but but He knows in a caring sort of way. So don't worry. Change your focus. Verse 33, seek first, and literally the kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things, all of your needs will be provided. God will provide. The idea of seeking here, it's a a present verb. It's a continual. It's seek and keep seeking. Seek and keep seeking the kingdom. And God's righteousness. What righteousness? The the righteousness that is being laid out for you here in the Sermon on the Mount. Not an external works-oriented righteousness, but a righteousness that occurs internally by faith in Christ that then flows out through good works. Seek that. And God will provide. Beloved, the kingdom is not to be one competing aim among many. We talked about that last week, right? We we talked about the the problem of double vision. That when you try to focus on two things at the same time, you're destined for destruction. We are to have one eye sharply focused on the kingdom and the righteousness of God. And God will take care of everything else. It's a pretty strong promise, isn't it? All these things will be added to you. To you. Stop worrying. Remember the sovereignty and the love of God. Don't worry. Change your focus. Third, don't worry. Live in the present. Verse 34 Don't worry. Live in the present. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now when Jesus speaks about tomorrow here, he's not speaking strictly about the next 24 hours. Tomorrow is a reference to the future. It could be the next 24 hours, it could be the next week, it could be the next month, it could be the rest of your life. Tomorrow is a broad term here. It just scoops up everything in the future. Everything. What Jesus is saying to us here is, listen, we need to acquire the skill to live one day at a time. Today. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Just live today. Live in the present. Now in our home, we have a a saying. We call it telescoping. Telescoping. And it, it kind of goes like this, you know, a telescope thing you look into, right? You look up into the skies. It takes things that are really far away and brings them what? Close. It takes the stuff that's really far away and brings it close. So when you are telescoping in life, what you are doing is you are taking problems that are way far away that may or may not actually even occur, and you're bringing them all into the present, to Today. And then your mind is paralyzed with anxiety and worry about all of these things that are galaxies away. You don't even know whether it's going to happen. I mean, to be honest, you don't know whether whether you're going to be alive tomorrow or not, right? What a waste of time if you're going to be dead tomorrow to spend today worrying about it. (laughs) Don't you think? Perspective. We have to have perspective, we have to live in the present. Let tomorrow's troubles stay in tomorrow. Today's got enough problems of its own. That's his last illustration here, the second half of verse 34. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The illustration here I'm calling Father Time. I had to do that because everything else began with F. (laughs) So I had food, future, fashion, family, identity, and then I thought, uh, all right, Father Time. That works. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's actually using humor again. He's using a, just a bit of humor again, and, he, and he's personifying the future here as a character consumed with emotion, the emotion that's normally experienced by people who think about the future. So he takes the future and and he creates a caricature of the future of this person who is is like Father Time and he's he's fretting, he's floor pacing, he's hand wringing, he's hyperventilating, he's on the brink of an anxiety attack. He does more than enough worry for everybody. Let tomorrow worry about itself, he's saying. Let old Father Time worry about the future. You don't need to. Because he's going to do more than enough worrying for all of us. So it's a, it's a humorous way of, of getting at the same thing. Now Jesus closes here. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. There's a candid acknowledgement here that's true. There are trouble for the followers of Christ. Earlier here in chapter 5, he laid some of that out for us, Right? Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. By the way, that's a kick up your heels kind of be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are going to be difficulties in life, Jesus says. Particularly because you're my follower, and if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. But don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about next week. Don't worry about next year. Don't worry about what am I life going to be like when I, you know, when I retire or whatever. Don't worry about that. You may not live that long. Let tomorrow take care of itself. You stay in the, in the moment, in the present. Stop worrying, live in the present. Stop worrying, live in the present. Okay, let's just review it here. Freedom from anxiety. How do I gain it? Here they are. Stop worrying, remember the sovereignty and love of your God. Stop your worrying, remember the sovereignty and love of your God. Secondly, don't start worrying. Instead, change your focus to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Third, don't worry. Live in the present. Let the future take care of itself. These are the very practical ways that Jesus tells us that we can counsel our own heart with the truth of the Word of God. Now, there is one gigantic temptation, I think, that rises up in the midst of this entire teaching. And what that temptation is, is a temptation to soften the sharp edges here. Soften the sharp edges. What I mean by that is to think of the exceptions. Some of you have been doing that already. Some of you should never take up playing cards, okay? I'm just telling you that, okay? If you don't know what that means, you can think about that later, all right? You're thinking about the exceptions. All during this sermon, you're saying, yeah, but. Okay, but. You're thinking about the exception to this morning's message, the exception to the truth that Jesus will provide. Or maybe it was conceived like this. You're, you're thinking about starving Christians in Africa. And you said, well, they're starving. I thought Jesus said he would provide. Now, that's a good question. That's a difficult question. But that's not a question that we're going to raise and answer this morning. It's not the topic this morning. There is an answer to that question, but it's not for this morning. Because if we allow ourselves to do that, what we do is we evade the truth here. We're really good at this, by the way. Really, really, really good. Whenever we read or hear a prohibition in the Bible, the first thing that comes to many of our minds is the exception clause. Yeah, but what if, and then they start building this scenario, right? Well, then it couldn't possibly be true when that happens. Don't do that. Don't do that. Listen. Let the Spirit of God drive the truth unvarnished, undulled, no exceptions, straight into your heart. And then hear it. If you don't, you will walk away from this passage and you will continue to be plagued with the sin of worry. You will continue to be plagued with it. Instead, let the truth resonate deep. Let God worry about the exceptions. You take Him at His word. By faith. And then act. Beloved, that's how you got saved. That's how we are to live. A quote here from another fellow, he says, Disciples must not permit their needs to dominate their prayers, their thoughts, and their activities. That is immaturity. But neither must disciples think that God does not care about their needs, That is unbelief. There are two ditches, immaturity and unbelief. May God deliver us from both. Let the Spirit of God speak to your hearts this morning through His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, the message that Jesus has given us this morning is straight and it is true. Like a well-placed arrow, it penetrates directly into our hearts. We confess our own guilt that we have given in to the sin of worry and anxiety on more than one occasion. Some of us even now are, are gripped with a battle that's going on in our own soul because of the various circumstances of life. How debilitating it can be when we give in. And how freeing it is when we don't. Oh God, strengthen our faith. Help us to use what you have given us through your word and spirit. We might walk the truth and in the light. Help us, O oh Lord, to counsel our own heart, to, to quiet our noisy souls by repeating back to ourselves the truth that Jesus has taught us here and then to be apprehended by faith and to live accordingly. Our Father, may You enable us as a body to exhort and encourage one another to pray for one another, particularly when we're in difficult times, and and to pray along these lines. Not that we would be delivered, but that we would persevere through by faith in Christ. Finally, O Lord, I pray for that person here this morning who does not know Christ. They are a Gentile. They are one separated from the people of God outside the family of faith. Their God, a God of their own making, is arbitrary and capricious and impotent. They should be worried. And yet, O Lord, You stand with Your arms wide open for them. You invite them to come and to receive Jesus as their Savior. May your spirit move their hearts even now, right here in their seat, they might call out to Jesus to save them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, beloved. I'll see you tonight at 5.15. I hope you bring something good. I'm going to be hungry. Okay? God bless you.